You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Before we get started, dear listeners, I have a story to tell. Uh, One score and seven weeks ago in the city of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I was at an event called Theology Beer Camp. Some of you have heard of it, I'm sure. And I was recording a really, I thought, pretty good interview uh, with philosopher of religion Myron Penner. Uh, it was a live podcast. There were at least seven, 800 people listening to it. And, uh, you know, they were just going nuts, of course, all for Myron. I assure you, all for Myron. But um, we got done recording and I shook Myron's hand and said, thank you. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy that. And then a few weeks later, uh, I got the audio. Um, I can't remember if it was from Trip Fuller or someone else, but only the first 30 minutes were there. And come to find out, the uh, laptop on which our show was being recorded crashed in the middle of the recording. But Myron is a nice guy, so he decided to uh, you know, pardon that uh, attack of gremlins. <laughs> And here we are, uh, not in front of a live audience, but on a Zoom call. But we're going to try to recreate some of it. Um, I'll go ahead and say that in the show notes for this episode, and I'm going to try to post those on ChristianHumanist.org and on our Facebook group, uh, you can link to Myron's talk, or at least I'm going to ask Trip Fuller if he'll give me the link to Myron's talk, so that you can see the kinds of things that we're going to talk about. Myron gave a very good, brief uh, survey of the intersections between philosophy of religion and cognitive science, and that's the kind of thing that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Myron, thank you for uh, coming back on the show, man. Hey, Nathan, thanks for having me. Um, One of the things that, you know, you start out this talk, you know, as we're recording six months ago, talking about uh, is a difference between uh, teleological and efficient causes, uh, which made my Aristotelian heart sing, uh, when it comes to the way that we talk about uh, religion. So talk a little bit about, you know, theological accounts of religion and, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, or if you want to use the term, it's perfectly good, uh, psychological accounts of religion and, you know, how those Aristotelian causes kind of map onto those two ways of talking about it. Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll take a step back and just say that this whole discipline, uh, which has come to be known as cognitive science of religion, uh, it really is uh, an outgrowth of um, this idea that we can use the tools of cognitive psychology to understand some basic kind of mental processes at, at kind of a, a species level. And um, one of the, the intuitions for researchers in this area is that our mind is not just a blank slate <clears throat> that gets uh, tuned by our experiences, um, but rather we come to the world of experience kind of pre with some with some factory settings that make certain things very easy for us to believe and other things more um, more challenging for us to believe. And so a few decades ago, uh, a multi, you know this kind of multidisciplinary research agenda involving psychologists and philosophers and anthropologists started to team up and apply these tools to the phenomenon of religion, because it seems that everywhere and every when you had human beings, you had beliefs and behaviors that uh, have been uh, religious in nature, involving rituals that create meaning, uh, involving stories, explanatory stories that involve supernatural agents, that kind of thing. And so these researchers are trying to understand, well, what, what are the cognitive mechanisms that uh, we seem to have that make it that incline us towards 
uh, uh, religious believing. And one of and one of the, the the cognitive kind of processes that seems to be uh, particularly salient here is this idea that we have uh, we can't help but see telos in the world around us. We can't help but see things happening for reasons, for purposes, and uh, we we default to. Uh, explanations that just fill in the explanatory gaps for us. And this is uh, well-researched by psychologists. Uh, it appears early in lifespan. You have uh, these famous experiments. Um, well, psychology famous, right? It's not like, you know, <laughs> there, there's like right, famous, right. famous, there's philosophy famous, there's academic famous, and then there's psychology famous. But famous within uh, cognitive uh, science of religion, these developmental experiments done by uh, researcher uh, Deborah Kellerman, who, you know, did lots of different uh, things with, uh, with with kids in in experimental setups. And one of the one of the results was, you know, you ask children, you know, why are, you know, for, for a reason behind some natural phenomenon, why are the rocks so pointy? And they'll just say things like, well, you know, so that the animals don't sit on them, right? They'll default to some kind of explanation that appeals to a, a purpose. And uh, this persists across lifespan. Uh, we see it even within people who are, ex are explicitly atheistic or agnostic. Uh, when you put them under cognitive load, where they're doing some kind of task, they just kind of de they'll, they'll often default to, to a teleological explanation. So that's kind of the intersection with this uh, Aristotelian notion that, you know, we can explain things in terms of purposes or causes. Cognitive science of religion will say, well, you know, that's, that's just part, that, that's kind of a human thing. Right, right. And, and you know, uh, one of the phrases that you used in your talk that I enjoyed so much, and, you know, we we, we got such a good uh, response from the audience. I know I'm going to keep being bitter about this, this whole recording, Myron, uh, is this idea of promiscuous teleology. So, I mean, uh, you, you got to tell our listeners uh, what happens when teleology gets promiscuous. Well, it finds a lot of partners, right, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's this it's this idea that um, you know, we our our intuitions pump out explanations uh, in, in ways that are quick and automatic. Uh, we that don't require a, a lot of effort in most cases, and so it's just this idea that um, you know when when there is something in our experience uh, that doesn't immediately you know uh, um, that the purpose for which isn't immediately apparent, we we fish around for stories to kind of uh, to fill in the gaps. And I guess, you know, the application that that we made uh, here at uh, or at Theology Beer Camp, you know, where the theme of the of the, the weekend was experiencing God. Uh, the question that um, that I was tasked to, to kind of address was how does how does cognitive science of religion inform our our views about what it is to experience God? And what I tried to, to point out is that theologically and, you know, existentially, uh, it's a very uh, natural question for people of faith to say, you know, what what are God's purposes in the events in, in uh, that I'm experiencing? What are God's purposes in global events? You know, how how do these things fit within God's economy? So that those are very theologically driven questions. Uh, but you taking taking a, a step back or sideways, um, you know, cognitive scientists of religion will say, well, that's all, that's just a very human question because we look for reasons, we look for purposes, and we have cognitive processes that are geared towards uh, filling in those gaps for us. So then there's always kind of a, a question, you know, if, if uh, and, and perhaps we all know people like this who can't, you know, who, who are very confident in the stories that they tell about what God is doing and why and for what purpose. 
And uh, what I think you get from, from cognitive science of religion is just a, a cautionary note to put the brakes on to say, well, you know, we're, 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 uh, we have propensity to see purpose everywhere. Uh, are, you, are you really on to what God is saying or are you just kind of fishing around for a story that, that um, satisfies our intuitive desire to, to explain? That's good. That's good. I want to go in another cautionary direction because I can't remember if we talked about this in October. Frankly, there's a lot about October. I don't remember, but um, it was beer camp after all. Well, yeah. (laughs) And and I should note that, uh, you know, under my uh, Emmanuel College contract, I did not partake of any of the beer, but I did of plenty of the theology. So but (laughs) um, one question that 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 has occurred to me in the six months since um, is a historical question. And, you know, I mean, one of the things about the term religion is that, you know, when it arises in Latin in the Roman empire, uh, it has to do with, you know, temple ceremony specifically when Christians adopt it, it tends to apply to uh, monastic orders. And then, you know, f- as far as I can tell, it's really John Calvin who brings it out to Christianity more generally. And then it's not until, you know, the most recent I want to say, you know, 400 years, give or take, that, you know, we get a plural religions. So, I mean, when uh, cognitive science uses this term, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a, as far as, you know, linguistics goes, it's a very modern, very recent use of the term. Uh, is, it, is there a reason that, that cognitive science landed on religion rather than, you know, one of its competitor terms like spirituality or wisdom or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, w- within humanities, the disciplines, uh, religion is kind of a, a contested term, right? And that's um, the point of uh, studying religious studies, is so you can re- realize you have no idea what a religion is. <laughs> well, right. And I think one of one of the challenges is, um, you know, there are so many things that seem to to uh, fall into the rubric of of religion and uh, how. Um, you know, are, are there things that they have in common? Is there some kind? Is there something that all religions have and share? And trying to look for a, a common essence. And uh, the beauty of cognitive science of religion approach uh, is that they care not one bit about any of that, and they're happy to uh, use this approach. It's called fractionation, basically. And like the name implies, um, they the the uh, subject of kind of empirical inquiry for cognitive scientists of religion tends to be very narrow. So they will look at a particular slice of of, uh, behavior or uh, belief or some type of practice uh, that by and large would be recognizable as falling under some kind of heading of religion, right? But they're not not looking to, to explain, you know, religion, capital R. What they're looking to explain is to provide some kind of of scientific explanation, scientifically informed explanation of something like prayer practices or uh, belief in supernatural agents uh, or afterlife beliefs or mind-body dualist uh, uh, approaches to human persons or uh, ritual practices. These are all kinds of uh, slices that that are, um, you know, recognizably part of a religious framework, whatever religion means. Uh, and they're not concerned with defining religion, but they're looking specifically at these kind of uh, fractionated pieces to to see, um, you know, can we pro- can we through different uh, um, scientific approaches, experiments, cross cultural work, developmental work, 
sometimes a bit of cognitive neuroscience uh, creeps in as well. Can we understand kind of the mechanisms that generate this particular slice? And then I think, I mean, and that that certainly was was the approach that that uh, was um, was launching uh, this discipline in the '90s. What we're seeing now, though, is uh, a bit more um, uh, pushback or nuance provided by uh, cognitive anthropologists uh, and and the like, who are saying, well, you know, we need we need to pay more attention to the system, the the the, the systems or the environments in which these particular religious practices are are being um, manifested, so so that we can understand kind of the, the the cultural influences as well. And so that's when you start to get more, you know, uh, um, not necessarily traditional religious studies, but a little bit more attention to other aspects of the religious life than that kind of uh, a splintered kind of fractionated approach. Right, right. Because I mean, you know, what strikes me about, you know, that set of questions that you posed is that it works pretty well for Islam, it works pretty well for Christianity. But then when you get into traditions like Buddhism, Confucianism, things like this, it seems like you would need to ask different research questions as you're approaching it. I mean, uh, do studies in this field, you know, tend to treat Confucianism and Protestantism as basically the same kind of a thing? Or, you know, does does the study of Confucianism start from different questions, psychologically speaking, or, or uh, cognitive science speaking, uh, than a study of, uh, you know, Jesuit Catholicism does? Yeah. So I th yeah. So I think uh, the, the, it's both, right? And so um, what uh, what one kind of underlying uh, hypothesis is, and, and maybe it's even more just an underlying uh, assumption, is that. Um, I mean, so so what cross culture so cross cultural work is great for both uh, for for confirming or disconfirming hypotheses about what's going on at a, at a species level, right? So if um, uh, and and I think one of the one of the assumptions behind this uh, area of research is that there are certain species level cognitive kind of mechanisms that we have simply in virtue of having the meat between the ears that we do as a species in the typical case, uh, that is going to, uh, you know, be operating in a very general sense in environments that we find the, the world over, right? In the sense that uh, gravity is going to work the same, you know, in uh, different parts of the world. Uh, every culture needs a word for, you know, for for hand, uh, or there are basic kind of uh, biological and physiological uh, um, needs that we have uh, over time, you know, evolved to to manage and navigate. And so, navigating social spaces, uh, reading facial recognition, uh, being able to uh, articulate thoughts and language, right? So these are species level uh, problems and, and how, it, how it kind of leads and, and gets um, uh, expressed in, in a religious way. Obviously it looks super different depending on where and when you are, uh, but there are also some similarities too. And so with the cross-cultural work, it does, to get back to your question, uh, there are 
some, there are some questions that will be the same because they're trying to understand, you know, uh, if we peel back the influence of culture, is there something that we can understand just about our own kind of cognition? But it's also paying attention to the particular ways in which culture does tune our own cognition to make religion uh, look the way that it does in all of its diversity, right? So it's, it's, right, it's a bit right. of both. It, it's, it's, it's a bit of both. And I think what the cultural anthropo and, and cognitive anthropologists are pointing out is that um, yeah, in the early days of cognitive science of religion, there was, uh, if not a naive view, a very, the, the starting point was to say, let's understand the religious mind uh, as a species. And, and I think what the, the anthropologists are, are pointing out is that, well, um, you know, uh, th there are important ways in which cultural differences uh, shape and, and manifest in, in religion. That's good. That's good. And, and, you know, where that question comes from, Myron, is that when I teach uh, world religions, you know, I mean, one of my absolute obsessions is with the birth of Hinduism, uh, because, I mean, you know, before the British show up, you have temples and you have the Mahabharata and you have the Vedas and you have shrines and you have Dharma and you have Karma and you have yoga and you have all these sorts of things. And then I feel like the East India Company shows up and says, well, we need one term for all of that. We'll just call it all Hinduism. Because it's right. all roughly speaking around that same river, so we'll just treat it as if it's one thing. So yeah. you know, I, I I don't think that I you know I mean I think that the impulse to uh, unify the discipline I mean comes from the biological and the physical realities you just narrated. Uh, you know I mean I I always just get jittery when people try to unify things that don't seem to want to be unified. So yeah, yeah, that, that's that's right. Um, now. And, and scientific approaches are intrinsically kind of reductionist in their in their uh, emphasis and not in not to use that as a dirty word, but just to say that, you know, when when you're able to uh, explain, you know, uh, some some level of activity or event or behavior by, you know, uh, you know, reducing that to, you know, simpler or underlying kind of explanatory causes well then we've you know we feel like we've learned something and we've, we've understood something and i mean the interesting thing too and this is this is what uh, uh drove a lot of the, the earlier uh research programs and continues to animate uh, cognitive science and religion uh, today is ritual and you know you know there are some interesting features of ritual that are are very recognizable in uh small scale uh, 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 more animistic kind of religions and large scale uh, smells and bells, high God religions. There are some interesting features that that look quite similar, right? And um, so, so, so that's where the cross cultural work can kind of point to uh, to uh, something at a species level to say, oh, there's there uh, there seems to be something in in how. Um, our our minds are naturally kind of geared towards uh, experiencing certain things, and of course, you kind of layer that through with evolutionary psychology. Then the 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 theorizing gets to say, well, okay, so you know how and how and why did this particular arrangement of mental tools just you know appear in our in our history? Uh, what problems are they geared to solving? Uh, is one question. Um, you know, in this field, and not, scholars disagree, of course, as they tend to do, uh, whether or not uh, religion itself is, is adaptive or something that was that was selected for, you know, particular beliefs and behaviors that involve the supernatural, appealing to supernatural agents that involve uh, that kind of intersection uh, uh, that we see, or is uh, the religious life just 
kind of a, a byproduct of having the particular mental tools that we do, which were which were selected for other purposes. So there's there's debate about that, uh, and it's hard, you know, and it's, it gets it gets tricky to try and, and tease out how to how to set up conditions to test one hypothesis over and against the other. Sure, sure. And I want to pick up on that evolutionary idea because I think it pairs in interesting ways with what I think of as as a sort of technological uh, idea of religion. And that is that, you know, I mean, uh, religion is something that the human species, and usually it's not a a conspiracy where people are, you know, uh, duplicitous in their development of it. But as a species, you know, human beings develop uh, what we call religion or spirituality or whatever to cope with certain things. Now, the the reason that that occurred to me, and again, I'm kind of glad that we get to talk about this six months later, because I'm not near smart enough to think about these things three hours after your talk, but after six months, I can do something. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll confess that the, the Protestant side of me uh, wants to insist that, you know, when we talk about prayer, when we talk about the Eucharist, when we talk about baptism, uh, you know, we're talking about something that is a divine initiative and a human response to divine initiative. And I guess the question I have is, within cognitive science, is there room to pose questions about non-human and specifically superhuman agency or is the question set exclusively uh, a, a a set of questions about technology, or is there another term you'd prefer to technology? Well, I think what what cognitive scientists are, are trying to do uh, is to understand what is going on, what, what explains uh, the the different types of behaviors that you uh, and and experiences uh, that you just mentioned. So, for example, one of the early um, uh, 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 books to appear in this field uh, was uh, by um, uh, Tom Lawson and Robert McCauley on uh, where they did a real deep dive on on uh, rituals, and they um, uh, uh, have this um, distinction between special agents and special patient rituals. And so what they're doing is they're looking at, at ritual activities where uh, the, uh, it's the god. It, that's involved in doing something uh, uh, unique and something that only the God can do on behalf of uh, the participant. And they contrast those types of rituals with uh, more kind of mundane, ordinary, uh, week, week over week over week kind of rituals where it's actually the participant that is offering something uh, uh, to, to the God. And what they notice is that the sensory pageantry tends to be quite different when it's the God doing something versus when it's the participant offering something to, to the God. And so, um, and, and you see that in all sorts of different, uh, religious contexts, right? Where, you know, is, uh, and how is, uh, the God being represented and, uh, what exactly is being done, uh, uh, to, uh, to the worshipers. And so, so, to answer your question, like, does cognitive science of religion leave room for thinking about things as being a divine initiative and a, and a worshipful response? Well, sure, in that they're, they're, they're happy to identify those categories in a ritual context and, and to, to pay attention and, and to recognize them. Now, they're not, uh, you know, drawing conclusions then about, oh, so now we understand what God is like. Rather, what they're saying is, or where we under, uh, we you know are trying to get an understanding of of how people conceptualize and in some cases ritualize their experience of God and their response to God and their conceptualization about what what God is doing on their behalf, right? So right, right, 
And, and, and I guess, you know, and I, I want to follow up on it just a little bit because, I mean, it seems like this does very good work for, and again, I realize my terms are not the, the terms of the field, so correct me anytime you need to correct me, but um, autochthonous religions uh, that, you know, have been in a place as long as people can remember people being in a place. It seems yeah. like it is less helpful for explaining traditions like Buddhism or Islam or Christianity, where you have a historically contingent um, moment of beginning, if you will, you know, whether it be uh, Gautama's lifetime or the lifetime of Jesus or the lifetime of Muhammad. Uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, really, I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, do, do, does the terminology change? Do the questions change when you've got a historically contingent beginning point, uh, you know, as opposed to when, you know, the the practices and the rituals have been there since time immemorial? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, so, so uh, regardless of whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, more um, uh, religions that we would get kind of in very small scale hunter-gatherer societies that still exist today, where the expectation is that that, that religious life is, looks pretty, pretty similar to what it would have, you know, uh, in, in kind of a long uh, uh, history and backstory. Um, and you're comparing that to, uh, um, you know, Christianity or Islam or uh, uh, Buddhism, where you have, you know, the, the uh, you know, it's, it's easier to pinpoint the historical starting point of those religions. Than yeah, well, we, we can narrate what the region was like before the tradition began. Right, right. So, uh, so, so certainly some of the, the, the questions will be, will be different, but uh, one of the things that you will uh, see in, in this research is, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the discontinuities and, but also what are the continuities? And uh, one of the, um, this is uh, um, one set of, of uh, one line of research, for example, looks at the differences that you see in uh, religions and hunter-gatherer groups versus uh, the high gods of, uh, uh, you know, Christianity, Islam, and, and kind of the, the big, omni, all-powerful uh, uh, moralizing gods, is that uh, in smaller scale societies, you know, they will have a moral code, uh, and they will have gods who will, you know, will do things and are interested in some aspects of human behavior, but it's not necessarily that you get this fusing of the gods being the moral gatekeepers of your life, right? It's not like there's there's not the same kind of connection between religion and morality uh, in, in those expressions of religion that you see in, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the big God religions where you've got, you know, God who uh, uh, is super powerful, uh, can reward you and punish you not, not only in this life, but in the next. Uh, and also it doesn't just care about whether you, uh, uh, you know, are sufficiently supplicant to them, but actually care about what kind of person you are and is morally interested in your quality and character. L uh, let me ask this real quick. I mean, is, yeah, yeah, is, jump is, in. is the distinction between um, urban gods and rural gods an important one here? Because it seems like the ones that you're describing as the high gods are the ones that get associated with Rome or Jerusalem or, you know, the urban centers rather than with, you know, as you said, hunter gatherer tribes or even, you know, pre-urban agrarian societies. Right. Right. 
So, so that's a, you are putting your finger exactly on one of the central uh, um, theses in this area of research in that, uh, so there's a scholar at the University of British Columbia, Ara Noren Zion, who is a, a, a great uh, uh, resource in, the, in this area. And he wrote a book called Big Gods. And basically his thesis, uh, and he pulled together lots of different strands of, of research, is that it was actually the, um, uh, you had the temple before the city is kind of one, one way of, of how he phrased it. Because once he, uh, on um, what he tries to argue in that book is that what the uh, conceptual framework of a moralizing high God allowed was the development of a scale of society where you could trust people beyond your own group of 150, right, uh, in your tribal society that you that allowed for the development of larger scale societies, right? So he he would say that uh, the temple came before the city insofar as uh, once you had kind of the the the, the social uh, infrastructure that a moralizing high God allowed for, then you could get the development of, of larger scale societies. Now that has, is quite contested. Uh, and there are, uh, um, you know, one, you know, more established hypothesis, I guess, in the sense that it had been around longer is that, you know, it was agriculture and the development of agriculture that uh, was much more, uh, that predated the development of high God religion uh, in, in the larger scale society. So there's different views about that, but I think you're exactly right to, to note the connection between uh, a more urban development and uh, a morally interested high God who is just able to manage and, and quite frankly, cares more about different details of your life. Right, right. And, and I guess, you know, my, my sample size is limited to the Mediterranean basin, but I mean, I think- Yeah, of, well, but that's, I mean, there's very fertile ground for religion, right? Yes, so, yes, so. indeed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think about, you know, not only the the biblical history where, you know, I mean, you've got the household gods of Levon in, you know, Genesis that seem to yeah. predate, you know, a, a centralized Jerusalem temple cult, but then also in Roman texts, I mean, before you get the grand Jupiter of Virgil, you know, you definitely have a sense that, you know, there are household gods, there are agricultural gods. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, they, uh, they, you know, there's, there's definitely some kind of connection uh, between right. urbanization it, it, and, you know, the, uh, the expansion of, you know, the grand gods. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I take your point that, I mean, it might be even earlier than urbanization that that starts to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, certainly one, one of the, uh, what seems to be true is that for most of, like humans, uh, insofar as they have been religious, uh, for you know the vast, vast, vast majority of their experience have been polytheists of some sort, right? And so um, the idea of of monotheism, and you even see this in biblical texts where the early expressions of monotheism were not denying the existence of other gods, just rather that there, there's only one you know, super God, the other ones don't really matter. And there's only right, one. Right. Henotheism is the term that they yes. taught me when I was an yes. undergrad. And yes. I, I, I didn't think I would ever use that term again, but here today has come, <laughs> Myron, today has come. Right. right. Now, one of the interesting phenomena that you deal with in your talk and, and again, listeners, hopefully I'll be able to get a link from Trip Fuller and you'll be able to listen to this talk, uh, you know, alongside this conversation uh, is the idea that, you know, these, uh, religions, and I'll just go ahead and use that word, even though, you know, sure. my, the, the side of my personality. <laughs> yeah. And, and I got to explain, I mean, I, I, I feel like at least a third of my world religions class gets taken up with 
explaining to students how we don't know what the heck a religion is. So I, I get yeah. nervous when we use that term without crossing yeah. our fingers, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that religions tend to uh, make distinctions between in-group and out-group, that the stability of religious traditions tends to increase when that boundary becomes higher. Uh, they tend to deteriorate when that boundary becomes lower. And, you know, here's where I want to turn to the theological for a moment and say that, you know, I mean, in the history of Christianity and, and you know, again, uh, I, I always get nervous unifying things and saying that there's yeah. a single thing called Christianity, but mm -hmm. there have been reform movements at various points in this Jesus tradition constellation uh, where people, you know, either appealing to the written text in the case of Protestantism or appealing to, uh, you know, a community discipline. You know, if you're talking about the 11th, 12th century uh, monastic revolution uh, or, you know, I mean, in other forms where um people have drawn from the resources within uh, Christian traditions to criticize the strong boundaries between in-group and out-group. And so, I mean, you know, there is a dynamic there where, you know, the, the criticism of what religion on an evolutionary level is supposed to do is coming from inside that same tradition we call religion. So uh, once again, I mean, you know, I, I realize I keep uh, you know, eventually you're just going to tell me to Google it. But, uh, you know, I keep asking about, you know, how does cognitive science, uh, cog cognitive science and philosophy of religion deal with this? But I mean, you know, um, have people done studies on that, uh, for lack of a better term, reformation dynamic inside of these traditions? Because I mean, I, I know that I've read about it happening uh, within, you know, Mahabharata traditions. I've read about it happening within Buddhist traditions. Certainly I've read about it within, uh, Judaism and Christianity and Islam. Uh, I mean, you know, well, is, is there an explanation for this or, you know, is, is this just treated as, you know, human con contingency and free will or uh, I need to shut up, let you talk. So talk, Myron. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a, it's a very important one uh, to, to think about um, today as we see in, you know, these, these, um, politically driven religious tra trajectories, uh, you know, on the right or on the left on the spectrum, where there's just a tendency to more extreme behavior and more ideological uh, gaps between people with different views, right? Uh, and I think that, um, you know, the, the speed with which uh, your your in group demonizes the out group is just getting you know faster and faster uh, as we uh, progress as a polarized society. So I think well, and, you know, and the and the constitution of the in group and out group is shifting, right? I mean, you know, uh, there was a time, and I mean, you know, I tell my students this is how I know I'm getting old uh, because there was a time where if you had said you know it's going to be the Republicans who are suspicious of the big corporations, I would have said no, they're not. Uh, but <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. Yeah, was well, uh, or the way in which different topics uh, become uh, utilized and and raised by different groups, and this was um, uh, you know a, a comment that was made in in a, a, a research lab I was a, a part of this last year, where the the main presenter was just noting how um, you know when he migrated to uh, the United States, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, religious, uh, like free, like freedom of speech, uh, was was a, a a preoccupation of the political left, and it was one of the things that they were very, um, uh, you know, wanting to defend, right? 
Uh, and, and that has flipped, the polarity on that is completely flipped where freedom of speech uh, is, is uh, um, and, and just, you know, freedoms and protecting freedoms in general uh, has become um, a rallying point of the right. So I guess the question, um, so, so if I'm understanding your question right, it's like, what do you do uh, with, um, you know, if the secret sauce of religion is defining a clear and hard boundary between who's in and who's out, uh, and uh, how how do we then understand uh, those kind of reforming impulses that try and either shift where the boundary is or maybe even open the door, right? Yeah, that- yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking of, you know, Spanish Muslim poets. I'm talking about, you know, uh, you know, frankly, the American liberal tradition, which has strong Protestant roots. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, these traditions that you can see in in all of these places, you know, I mean, it, in some ways, even, you know, Japanese nationalism that, you know, kind of relegates Buddhism to, you know, this is useful for all of us being Japanese together, right? Uh, you know, it seems like that impulse is coming from the same place that the in-group, out-group distinction is coming from. So, I mean, uh, how is it that, that you know, the, uh, uh, what what is the biblical image? Why, why is it that the salty and the sweet can come out of the same fountain? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't think uh, well, that's in the Bible, by the way, but I, I can't think of the Bible passage. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think a couple a couple things. Um, so wh- one of one of the approaches that is in um, uh, this uh, research to try and map the the religious mind is to think of things in terms of uh, what, what in psychology goes by a, a dual processing uh, account of cognition and not to get too much in the weeds. Uh, and and uh, But basically, it, it kind of makes sense to talk about some type of cognitive processes that we have that are, are very quick and automatic. They operate at a, a level kind of uh, pre-reflective. We're not really consciously aware of them. Uh, you know, our central nervous system is taking in all sorts of inputs and our brains are processing those inputs and uh, um, generating cognitive content for us that uh, um, we're not really consciously paying attention to. It's like, um, you know, when, when you're, if you're, if you commute on the same road every day, uh, and you can do all sorts of things with your mind as you think about, you know, your day ahead. You're not really concentrating on what you're doing, and yet somehow you magically get to where you get to work, right? You've navigated, you know, things, and and that is uh, these intuitive cognitive processes that are just driving the car, right? Um, and that that gets, you know, uh, um, that that those kinds of uh, processes, you know, do do all sorts of work for us. But then it also makes sense to talk about a different type of cognition where we are slowing down, we're paying attention, we're really thinking about what we're uh, what we're uh, uh, engaging, uh, we're maybe forming uh, beliefs or, or scrutinizing beliefs, evaluating them, and, and slowing down and reflect and reflecting. And so, um, a lot of what is really important for the religious life is very intuitive, um, in the sense that uh, it it you know scratches a lot of intuitive itches that we have uh, and uh, and yet we reflect and we think about our own uh, religious practices or spiritual practices and it's not like um, you know th- those those two types of, of ways of thinking uh, are are isolated from each other 
So I guess when it comes to reform movements, uh, and one of one of the, the one of the ways that we can think about um, trying to dial down the intuitive pressure to demonize an outgroup, and to ask the question, uh, is that really uh, reflecting our best values for how we think to, to pursue the religious life? Uh, we can, you know, override intuitions. And we can, with uh, training and practice and, and, and effort and goodwill, you know, uh, set new intentions to manage things. And, and in some cases, to really train our intuitions to, to look at people differently, right? Or to immerse ourselves in different sorts of experiences that will just intuitively have impact. And we see this all the time with outgroups. One of the, one of the most uh, uh, convincing practices to treat people better is just to spend uh, more time with them. If we're talking about in-group, out-group, uh, we see this a, a lot in cases where, you know, people who uh, have had certain views about LGBTQ plus uh, when, you know, uh, who, you know, might other them in a particular way uh, when, uh, you know, spending time with, uh, with, with people uh, is, you know, certainly, tends to, to change people's views in some respects, right? So uh, we see this, see this in different, different contexts. And, and so I guess the, the, the cognitive science of religion response to your question is how do we, if the secret sauce of religion is in-group, out-group, uh, how do we make sense of, of reform groups? Uh, well, I would, I would just say that, um, you know, there is this interplay between our intuitions and what they incline us toward, and also our reflective uh, cognition and the practices that we develop to train our intuitions in certain ways, and, and uh, they can uh, they can interplay in that way. Let me follow up on that for a moment because I mean, one of the suspicions, um, and and you know, when I, when I talk about uh, you know the rural poor in America, I'm, I'm thinking largely of my own family. Uh, yeah, you know, is that. Uh, they have become a kind of new outgroup uh, that, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I'll, I'll use their vocabulary for a moment and listeners understand that, you know, I'm, I'm playing sock puppet here for a moment. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the idea is that, you know, there are, uh, you know, media, political and university elite uh, who have discovered that there's a lot of benefits to be had uh, by rendering the coal miners and the factory workers and so on and so forth. Uh, as something less than fully American. And, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the, the suspicion that rises there is, I mean, you know, if the in-group, out-group impulse is, you know, so pervasive in human beings, uh, you know, I mean, is it inevitable? Uh, you know, I mean, so, I mean, are they right to suspect that, you know, we haven't actually uh, done away with in-group, Uh, can you still hear me, Nathan? Yeah, I can still hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Oh, there. You you cut out for a second, but now I can hear you again. Okay. Let, uh, Britt, uh, if you could cut that last few seconds out and let me let me let me take a run up at that last one. I forget where I started that line, but um. Uh, so uh, uh, just start with the rural poor in America. Okay. One of the suspicions that the rural poor in America have, and I'm I'm talking largely about my own family here. Uh, is that they have become the new outgroup uh, that, you know, I mean, uh, while the media and political and academic elites uh, congratulate themselves on being so inclusive when it comes to 
uh, you know, people from other countries, people of other sexualities, so on and so forth, that they haven't really become any more inclusive. They've just shoved some people out while they pulled some people in. So I, I guess my question is, I mean, you know, if we can zoom out from that a little bit, uh, you know, is this impulse to create out groups uh, something that is inevitable uh, or, you know, does, and again, I'm, I'm asking for what kinds of studies folks have done. Um, are there possibilities uh, for, you know, not only uh, inclusion that didn't happen before, but a more pervasive inclusion that includes the old inclusion? Yeah, I think uh, th that's a great uh, question. And I think what we're seeing uh, is um, the the, the way that our biases get tuned uh, and, um, uh, you, you know, the, the biases that in some sense are these propensities that we have uh, regardless of, of, you know, when and where we live, but how they get tuned is quite differently, is, is different in different times and places. And, and I think that uh, there is a kind of inevitability to that inclination to, to, uh, Put people in an out group, even though it gets tuned in different ways. As you, you, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, you might think, well, you know, who, who are the real Americans, right? Or who, who are the Americans worth, um, you, you know, that 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 embody the the highest kind of ideals that we might want to see in in American life and culture, right? And uh, you're pointing out this kind of urban rural split or different ways of conceptualizing that, and. There is kind of an inevitability insofar as um, that that pressure to to find an outgroup that is easy, that's an easy target to hate, which makes us feel good about ourselves, uh, is uh, is is going to be there. And I think this I mean this is what is so <laughs> spectacularly disappointing about this moment in North American Christianity uh, uh, and evangelicalism in particular is that like <laughs> it's just. Uh, the church is not part of the solution. It's part of the problem insofar as there is the, uh, you know, just pouring, pouring gas on these uh, um, really harmful, destructive tendencies to, 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 to line up out groups. Right. And, and, uh, um, and, and yet I guess I, I wouldn't, I don't want to be uh, like fatalistic here uh, in that um, I, I think just the, the modeling of humanizing the other, right, and to uh, allow uh, you know people to speak for themselves and to to center the voices of people that uh, you you know are are interacting with, and I and I think it's just it's a, the challenge though is that there are there are, seem to be fewer and fewer contexts for people to to come together and, and hear one another and to listen to to one another. That makes and, good uh, sense. That makes really good know, sense. Yeah, so I think um, uh, so. I think on the one hand, there is this kind of uh, um, propensity that that makes this kind of split you're talking about uh, very natural and, and cognitively quite easy. You know, it ticks a lot of boxes for us. And 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 just to even take a step back, like one of one of the the um, when we think about one of the distinctions between uh, humans and other primates, uh, you know, and, and other species, other primates, you know, are social. We'll live in social groups. Uh, but one one of the things that um, human beings seem particularly good at is, uh, uh, you know, navigating social space. And we've got a much richer set of tools that we have to communicate our, our to both communicate uh, what we're feeling, what we're thinking, and also to read these cues from other people. And um, 
what that does is it is it helps us you know solve this very very uh, primal kind of question is whom can I trust right who who is on my team right uh, and you might think well my family's on my team I'm kind of you know just through uh, you know biological proximity and we might extend that uh, just to, to some to some group and uh, what uh, um, to some degree kind of moral codes do this as well if you have a shared moral system uh, that's going to help uh, identify who's on your team and religious uh, uh, belief systems just kind of add a whole nother layer of, of tools and mechanisms by which we can see, see who's on my team, right? Who attends the same services as I do? Uh, who participates in the same rituals as I do? Uh, who, you know, is, um, uh, is, is committed to a certain set of practices that's just going to put them in the same room uh, as, as I am, right? And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, and and these are all you know, like one of the one of the um, the the blessings and the curses of of religion is its pro-sociality. And by pro-social, uh, uh, researchers in this area don't mean good for society as a whole, but what what is good for the society of your own kind of social group, right? And right. religions are very it, pro-social. It, it makes societies right. Yeah, exactly. And and you know your. Uh, uh, no one denies that religion is pro-social insofar as it helps you survive and reproduce because it gives you a community of love and support that goes beyond your immediate, you know, uh, 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 kin, kin uh, linkage. But, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the curse of that is that it really does that well if, if you have a very hard boundary between who's in and who's out. I mean, if you want to grow a megachurch, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, uh, uh, it's not rocket science. You find a charismatic leader and you define, uh, you find a people to hate. Right? And you just preach a message of how they're, you know, the, the enemy is at the door and we need to rally the troops. And, and right, it's just, it, right. like that, that just ticks a lot of boxes for people. Well, as we come in here for landing, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and note listeners that uh, at the live event, you know, there were like, two, 3000 people there. And, you know, Myron <laughs> and I had to answer like 12,000, 13,000 questions. So this ran several hours today. We're just going to go about an hour. So, uh, you know, uh, you can thank us later listeners, but you know, one of the, one of the things that you just now mentioned, um, is this, and, and I'll go ahead and grant that, that this is probably my inability to get past Immanuel Kant. Uh, mm-hmm. but you know, when we talk about, you know, statistical tendencies in populations, you know, we right. tend to talk in terms of, uh, you know, a population will tend to do this, this percentage of the time. And there is a kind of, of mechanical uh, inevitability baked into that, into, into, into our rhetoric. I'll put it that right. way. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, do we need to travel outside of the discourse of cognitive science to get to something like what Kant would call free will? Or, you know, is that, uh, you know... Is there a free will variable? Uh, yeah, that's a good um, that's a good question. I think what uh, uh, um, so to to step out of cognitive science of religion just for a second and just step you know uh, one or two steps sideways into just cognitive psychology and and cognitive neuroscience. Um, in, like the the question of freedom of the will is very much a, a topic in those areas, right? Because um, 
you know, there, there, it seems on, on the one hand, the more fine grained analyses we have about uh, how our brains are processing information, you know, it, we're, we become aware of all the different things that are going on pre-reflectively that influence our free choices, he said in scare quotes, that really call into question whether or not, you know, this idea of an autonomous, rational Kantian agent making a decision about, you know, following uh, the moral law or enacting any kind of, of free choice is a little bit suspicious, right? So, so. Although you know, even we, Kant was suspicious of that, to be fair. For sure, for sure, for sure. Um, no, I, exactly. I mean, um, but but I guess uh, so. So that I think that's relevant to thinking about how cognitive science and religion would treat kind of the the, the free agent. Certainly, um, uh, I, I think that uh, when it comes to understanding the mechanisms that are part of the religious life. Um, there, there does certainly seem to be more of an emphasis on, you know, what are the, what are the, uh, the things that are operating, you know, at a layer below our own kind of reflective control, uh, and you know, how do environments uh, tune our behaviors, you know, uh, in ways that, um, you know, our 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 mental life uh, just really gets gets, um, you know, triggered by basically. So, so kind of sidestepping the question about freedom and free free will. Uh, to, to some degree, but it's, it hasn't been a, a major major area of emphasis, I would say, for, for, for cognitive scientists of religion. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Myron, uh, our listeners are going to want to uh, dig into this conversation further. So, uh, you know, what are some authors? What are some books? What are some things that our listeners can read? And my one uh, mandate to you is uh, one of the authors has to be named Dr. Myron Penner. <laughs> so, um I'll I'll come to that at the end. One of one of the uh, 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 early kind of researchers in this area and who's still active is a, a cognitive psychologist by the name uh, experimental psychologist named Justin Barrett. Uh, and Justin Barrett wrote a couple of books, ha has written uh, several books uh, on cognitive science of religion, and and specifically uh, 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 with his uh, application towards Christian theology. Uh, and so uh, one of his books is called Why Would Anyone Believe in God? It's a short little monograph that kind of explains a, a, a cognitive science of, of religion perspective on why people believe and have believed in God. Um, uh, so uh, anything by Justin Barrett. There's actually uh, a new book that's come out. If, you're, if your listeners are interested in how do uh, these um, scientific approaches of religion uh, work, I'm holding it up here for you to see, Nathan. It's called Experimenting with uh, Religion. Uh, by uh, Jonathan Jong, uh, and it's a really nice, accessible kind of overview of just the experimental methods that are used by uh, psychologists, social psychologists, cognitive psychologists, and trying to understand religion. And what's really great about uh, Jong's new book, Hot Off the Press, is that he really, I mean, he's he's a prolific uh, and very active researcher. He's also a, a priest, so he understands the religious life from the inside uh, as, a, as, a, as a parish priest, but he also... Um, you know, has a very even-handed approach to, he's not, he's not, like, when the science doesn't really support a particular claim, uh, it's just kind of conjecture, he points that out, you know, and so there's, um, uh, uh, that, that's a really nice feature of, of that book. 
Uh, I've written something with a, I have a collaborator, uh, Laird Edmond, he's a cognitive psychologist, and he and I wrote a book uh, called uh, Lived Faith, uh, Applications of Cognitive Science of Religion to Theology. It's a chapter in an Oxford handbook, and that kind of looks specifically, gives an overview of cognitive science of religion, and then also uh, taps into some applications for, for, uh, for theological understanding. So we can put those in the show notes, too, if you like. And, and, and the text by Dr. Myron Penner? Well, uh, I'm working on a book right now on uh, God and cognitive science of religion, and that will be hot off the press uh, this fall. Very good. Very good. Hey, reach out because, I mean, I'd love to read that and I'd love to have you on our other show, uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, to talk about that. So absolutely, uh, anytime. keep keep my name in mind. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for uh, downloading and thank you for listening in. Uh, You've been listening to Dr. Myron Penner. Uh, As I said, look to the show notes. And I'll provide a link to the talk that he gave at Theology Beer Camp. Um, You might notice, listeners, that this is the first episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast you've seen on your feed in a while. Um, As David and Michael have moved from college teaching to high school teaching, our schedules are just harder and harder to get synced up. Uh, But you can still catch Michael on uh, Before They Were Live, the uh, Disney movie podcast. You can still catch David uh, doing guest spots on City of Man, our faith and politics podcast. You can catch all three of us on Christian Humanist Profiles, our interview podcast. And finally, there will be a new show that I'm doing. Uh, I'm not going to say the name of it just yet because I want it to be a surprise when it does drop. But uh, watch your feeds, watch your Facebook, and uh, there are good things coming. So Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. All right, sorry for that long outro, Myron. I... <laughs> <laughs>